Welcome to Women and Manufacturing, where accomplished women interview accomplished women. Well, hello and welcome to the Riveting Exchanges podcast. I am Andrea Olson and I'm here with my co-host Desiree Grace. And we have a fantastic guest today. Hey, Desiree, how are you doing? And would you like to talk a little bit about our guest? I am doing well. Thanks, Andrea. I'm very excited that Michelle Murphy from Ingersoll Rand has agreed to speak with us. She is the Chief Diversity Officer, and we could not be more thrilled to have her. So, Michelle, welcome. We're very happy you're on our podcast. Hi, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thanks. Um, We're wondering if you could tell our audience what a Chief Diversity Officer does and why is this an important role to have in an organization? Well, my, my view is that a chief diversity officer works to ensure there's equal opportunity for all. And it's important, mm-hmm. first, for good people, either retaining them or attracting them to, to come work here. And, and second, the, the overall link to the organization culture. We know that people consider the culture of an organization as a key either a tractor or detractor in their decision to join a company. And we want our values-based culture to be a reason people choose to join Ingersoll Rand. So we think that the way we think about engagement and inclusion and having an inclusive culture is really important. And we know that a sense of belonging is um, really important to employees' overall engagement And I I believe whether somebody's five or 95, they perform better when they feel like they belong. So we we think that's a really critical component of our culture, and we offer many ways for for our employees to engage. Um, And and I'd I'd love to share a little bit more about Ingersoll Rand um, as well. Please. Sure, go ahead. Um, Because, you know, you are considered one of the top companies in the U.S., so tell us a little bit more. So we are a $15 billion global organization, um, and our, our mission is really to advance the quality of life for people around the world through the products and services that, that we provide. Some people, um, actually probably most people, think of us as a diversified industrial or, or manufacturing company. I would say we know ourselves as a sustainability company, and we look at sustainability in, in three ways environmental, mm-hmm. business, and social. And environmental is, is what you think. It's um, really thinking about our impact on the environment. And we've demonstrated our commitment um, to improving the environment through aggressive climate commitments, and we've actually met them, met them um, on reducing carbon footprint of our facilities and of our products. Uh, the second one being business. Uh, this is all about being here another 150 years from now. Um, so it's about sustainable business processes impacted by the decisions we make every day. And then the third one is social, which is um, really about making the world better. And we've demonstrated that through our commitments to the CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion and Paradigm for Parity, items that we can we can certainly talk more about. But when I think about the, um, you know, what, role does the chief diversity officer play and, and how we think about that for us, it's connected into that social sustainability and 
part of what we believe is being a responsible uh, business operating in our world. Um, I think that's a fantastic, fantastic overview. And it just makes me think of a whole series of questions. Uh, but, you know, the first thing that comes to mind I think a lot of organizations struggle with is, you know, understanding the value of culture. And, you know, how do we measure whether a culture is healthy or not? And how does that impact the bottom line of our organization? And you, you said one of your three pillars is this social aspect, which is both internal and external. So, so how do you see organizational culture and more specifically, as you mentioned, diversity intersect? You know, how, how do you bridge those gaps? How do you tie that to that social pillar that you discussed? Well, we, we know diversity is a differentiator for business results, and that drives culture. So when, when, we, when we think about our business strategies, we have three, growth, operational excellence, and winning culture. And creating a winning culture is one of our three business strategies because how our company profitably grows is just as important as the growth itself. So when we think about the uh, where, where culture and diversity and I'll say business performance <laughs> intersect, mm-hmm. We, we think they're completely integrated and believe that you need to have all three to be successful, especially in the long term. And when we think about our people, we think our people are our competitive advantage, and we know that when they feel included and engaged, which is really a lot of what we do in the diversity and inclusion space, it's a lot of the work that we do, there's a cycle of success because the feeling included and belonged provides better results. Having good results allows more opportunity for people to be focused on the right things. And we know that that cycle of success gets created for us. So you really see an impact on the bottom line, not just, and both in terms of profitability and, and also you see an impact on the top line in terms of growth. Have you been able to measure retention, Michelle, so I know one of the things Andrew and I have talked about in our podcast has been recruiting and retention, especially when it comes to millennials. Can you speak to that as well and, and really a diverse workforce in general? So we, we certainly measure, we measure a lot of things, actually. We certainly measure uh, retention. Uh, we measure retention, um, I'll say, by, by, you know, as a company overall and then by our businesses so that we really understand what's happening um, in each of our businesses. We tend to have a relatively low um, attrition rate. Uh, people okay. who come and join Ingersoll Rand tend to stay. We have a, a fairly high tenured um, organization. I will say what we have seen with the, you know, the war for talent is very real and it's very much here and now. <laughs> and I think what, what we're certainly seeing is how important it is when you hire someone to really find ways to get them assimilated into the organization and find opportunities for them to engage and gain that sense of belonging as quickly as possible. So we actually look at our one-year and two-year retention rates to make sure that we're doing the right things when people join um, to help them become part of that highly tenured organization that we tend to have. Now, that's very interesting because we're seeing a lot more churn in organizations today in general. So you're definitely outpacing the market. Um, You know, you've talked about diversity at Ingersoll Rand. Can you speak 
on a more broad basis to the importance of diversity in the greater manufacturing environment? Mm, Certainly. You know, I, I think about all the studies that have been done around what does diversity bring, um, what does the diverse workforce bring uh, to to a company, to an organization of any size, for that matter. And you know, there's just there's been numerous research studies that show the benefit of having diversity in your workforce, and the results show up in very profitable um, terms. And and it just it it makes sense. The um, one of the biggest impacts I see is needing employees who reflect and understand our customers. And that doesn't really matter who you are or where you are. You need, if you're going to serve a customer base, you need to really understand what they need and what they want, as well as how they want to be interacted with. And I think that's where in the manufacturing sector, kind of I'm generalizing a bit, but we need more women, we need more ethnic minorities in our workforce who better understand the growing diversity in our customer base. Um, it's changing, and I think it'll continue to evolve, and I'd like to see it evolve faster. Mm-hmm. And I think the companies who figure out how to attract and engage and retain people will do better in the, in the long term. And that means um, having people come from all um, a wide variety of, of backgrounds, um, I do. I just I think companies will do better. Great. Um, you know, it is interesting when you think about um, understanding your customer base. People also tend to buy from people that are like them or that they feel understand them. So certainly if you have a diverse customer base, it makes sense to have a diverse workforce. Um, you know, let, let's move on a little bit maybe and talk about you a little bit more, Michelle. Uh, you've had a really fascinating career trajectory, um, and you've chosen with, with your skill set to stay in the manufacturing sector. Can you talk a little bit about why you've stayed in, in this vertical? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I just I like being part of a company that makes things, <laughs> And it's, and it's even better that we make things that make people's lives better. Uh, so, you know, when I think about uh, my time at, at Ingersoll Rand, you know, it's making environments either warm or cool so that they're comfortable, all the way to keeping life-saving medications and food cold so that it can get to the, the people who need it. And I just, I like that our solutions are tangible. You can see them, touch them, and know that they're working. And I think that's one of the... I think that's one of the things we've got going for us in the in the overall manufacturing sector is that you can see the um, deliverable or the the end product of what you're part of, and you see it helping people, and it um, it makes what you do feel worthwhile. You know, Michelle, it, well, it sounds you know, like that. You know, it and not to interrupt, but it sounds like that. You know, you have a culture that might not be atypical to the smaller or mid-sized manufacturer that is really somewhat stuck in the traditional uh, old school, if you will, culture environment focused strategy that's very product oriented, that's very production oriented. Um, And your environment is really just, you know, not your, your grandfather's manufacturing environment. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, in addition to culture, just what 
support Ingersoll Rand's vision of being a non-traditional manufacturer. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think manufacturing has a bit of a bad rap, um, and, and the perception is maybe mm-hmm. a bit outdated. Um, sure. You know, I know there was a, a recent study by Manufacturing Institute that showed the perception of manufacturing is poor, and parents are even like not encouraging their children to pursue careers in manufacturing, which is really unfortunate. Um, you know, right. manufacturing facilities today they're they're full of technology solutions and robotics, and they require highly skilled operators. You know, it's it's not this dark, dreary. <laughs> um, old time, you know, old time production facility. So I think for us, it's, you know, it, it is, there's a big part of what we do, which is making high quality products, but more important to us in, in, um, is on delivering those high quality products into the places where our customers can use them and then servicing those and, and building the relationships where we can really be part of helping solve the problems that the customers are trying to solve and using our products and services to do that. And, and for us, you know, we, we talk about progressive and inclusive culture and that extends, you know, of course we think that's important within the company, but that really for us extends out to our customers and our suppliers. And, you know, there's many things we've done to try to integrate some of our diversity work into our supply base and, and how we look at suppliers, how we select suppliers, um, making sure we're really inclusive in who's in our supply base uh, because we know that it delivers ultimately a better solution to the customer. And so as much as we might be focused on manufacturing because we're quote a manufacturing company, you know, I think we're, I think we're, um, we think about that as a core to to our business, but there's a lot more to it, and and wanting to be a full solutions provider in the sustainability space for our customers. So helping them run the most efficient operation that they can, whether that's in an industrial application, whether that's in their home or set of homes, um, in the, you know big residential complexes to how they might be running a, a building that they own um, could be the, the huge skyscraper to, you know, a, a, um, in a city to a factory in a, in a rural, um, in a rural area. So the being progressive in the way that we think about um, how people engage, whether that's our employees or our suppliers or our customers, I think that's part of what sets us apart. You know, and that's a really good point because, you know, you do think about the old traditional foundry environment, you know, dirty, a lot of physical labor, and that really doesn't reflect the reality today where, um, to your point, Michelle, there's a lot of high-tech applications, a lot of programming skills, CNC machines, robotics, automation, smart factories. There's so much more there that, maybe our, our image hasn't quite caught up with the reality. <laughs> right. Um, you know, that, you know, that's another question is in regards, going back a little bit to culture, I think all three of us can speak to the fact that we have been women in a manufacturing space that, that might be regrettably so not a traditional role. Um, it's been a majority male uh, for quite some time, and that that curve is just starting to shift. 
Uh, but can you see an impact and a difference specifically from um, a woman's perspective in regards to their impact on manufacturing and manufacturing culture? Hmm. I see um... – I see a lot of differences among different groups, and, and uh, when I say different groups, that can be by location, um, maybe by the sub-function in which they run, um, and, and can be by, you know, their demographic uh, status. I think the, um, the one thing that I see somewhat consistently is where, and this is maybe more kind of women in leadership positions or just seeing when women are part of a decision-making team, I mm-hmm. tend to see women include others or more ask for more input into decisions. And I, um, I think that what's interesting to me about that is I think it's wise in that it helps bring people along for the decision or the change, likely the, the change that is about to uh, be implemented. And that is probably one of the things I see I see most often or, or, or maybe even just most consistently is that, um, you know, let's kind of say the, some of the, the human element of inclusion showing up more in asking for input, uh, still being willing to make the decision, don't get me wrong, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. absolutely owning that decision but really getting input for it. And I, I think that's important. It's important in the way that um, people want to be included in decisions that impact their work. And so um, I certainly see that, uh, I certainly see that happening at least um, in the groups that, that I see. Well, and you know, there's nothing wrong with collaborative decision-making and getting buy-in on the front end. In a lot of cases, it tends to make execution um, more seamless, not that there's a, not that there aren't hiccups in, in execution, but if you do get buy-in on the front end, it certainly makes things a little smoother. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about manufacturing past, manufacturing present. I'm really interested, Michelle, to see what you think the next five to ten years of manufacturing looks like and if there's anything that you would say the manufacturing environment in general should address specifically, you know, in the areas of workforce diversity. If you were to coach a company maybe that doesn't have a chief diversity officer, you know, what might be one or two, three suggestions you'd have for them? Yeah, great question. When when I think about the next five to ten years, I I think we've really got to work on the perception of manufacturing and help more people see the opportunities that are available. And, um, you know, one way that we do that is celebrating Manufacturing Day, uh, which is a day dedicated to manufacturing and um, typically happens in October. And we, what we do is we open up our facilities around the world and bring students in, bring people within the community in so that they can see what we do um, and can understand how it works. <laughs> and that's been, um, that's been something that we think is really important as we connect more in the companies where we where we work and, and serve. So I think continuing to to help influence a positive perception of manufacturing is a is a pretty big deal. Um, the the second piece, and this is kind of at more angle that maybe the diversity side, but is, you know, acknowledging that unconscious bias might exist in hiring mm-hmm. at, at at your facilities and 
and work to mitigate that so that you get the best people. And, and being willing to talk about um, some of those differences, because what I often find is that we might think we're different, but people tend to have more things in common than they do have things that are different. And so if we sure. you know, to find that, we, we tend to find common ground and, you know, can, can bring people in. And then I, the, the third one, and I, I think this one's um, maybe a little more involved, but it's a, it's a willingness to help create bridges from schools to the industry. So whether that's, um, you know, high schools and some of the vocational programs and building pipelines into, into your company to, you know, getting to some of the kids in, you know, K through five and helping them understand that, um, School is important and math and science matters <laughs> um, to the community colleges or technical schools and, and colleges and universities. Just really looking at those partnerships and um, figuring out which ones you can really help build those bridges to that will help build you a pipeline um, and, and have people who want to come work at, at your company. You know, Michelle, that, that is just fantastic advice. And, and going back to uh, your comment about hiring and the fact that we might have an unconscious bias. I think we've seen, especially in manufacturing, and I'm sure uh, Desiree can attest to this, that you know we've spoken to a lot of different organizations, and and they have they don't have a chief diversity officer, but they do have an HR team, even if that's that's one individual. And it seems like a lot of manufacturers are struggling to hire folks and retain folks, mm -hmm. as we have mentioned. And, and all your advice is, are, are definitely things they need to do. Uh, but we've also seen that uh, some human resource departments are really struggling to identify how to hire for cultural fit. And it sounds like, if I read between the lines, that that's a factor in, in what you do at Ingersoll Ranch and say it's not just about skill set, it's not just about uh, work history, that there's a third element that maybe manufacturers aren't really considering. Could you speak to that? So, um, you know, it's interesting. When I hear you say cultural fit, I automatically have a, um, a not great reaction to that. <laughs> and, sure. And, um, and it's because I often um, associate cultural fit with, you know, if, if somebody says, oh, they're not a cultural fit, it means not like me. Right. Um, and well, that worries me, right? Nice. So, mm -hmm. um, but there's, there's a, I guess the way that I differentiate it, um, and I think about it in cultural contribution. So, like, what does go. this, what does this person bring? What do they bring to my team? You know, how do they help maybe round out certain skills or certain views or certain experiences? And then ultimately, right. what does that bring to the, bring to the company? And, and I think it's. Um, you know, we all tend to be com more comfortable around people who are like us. So, you know, if you if you immediately seek to find something that you share in common, um, it tends to diffuse a whole lot of the other things that might be visible differences. Um, right. So, you know, in thinking about how important it is, I think we're, what we really look for are people who share or have a common or shared understanding of the values of our company. And we think mm -hmm. our values are like, it's just, it's core to what we are. Everything we do is rooted in our values. And so 
we're looking for people who can talk to us about experiences or opportunities they've had to demonstrate those values. And that's going to tell us a lot about um, the contribution that, that they're going to provide in their role on the team. That's a really good point. Um, you know, an interesting conversation I just had yesterday with a friend that's in HR in a related business is they had changed the language they use in their recruiting. They found that they weren't getting the response to advertisements that they wanted, and mm-hmm. they, they hired someone to help them recruit a more diverse candidate pool. And what came out of that conversation was that their language was skewing very masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, ah. And by, by changing the description and the verbiage and just the words they used, um, you know, you can compare something sales versus business development. One sounds a little bit different, a little bit more responsible, a little bit more professional, dare I say, than the other. And so by changing their language, they found, and they, they did a baseline, they found they were getting a more diverse candidate pool just by changing the words they used. And I found that fascinating. Sure. <clears throat> yes. So um, <clears throat> you, you mentioned I lead diversity and inclusion for the company. I also lead talent acquisition. So this is okay. um, near and dear to me. <laughs> and, and we've actually found, had some very similar findings. And I think there really there are two things. One is being really clear about the requirements you have for the job. Often mm-hmm. companies put their wish list in their job description, right. and um, that naturally detours women. We know there's mm-hmm. been several studies out there that you know that will show, like repeatedly over and over again, women want to be qualified for you know 70 to 80 percent of the qualifications before they would consider applying for a job, and men are comfortable applying if they've got two or three. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be funny, like that's actually what the research shows. And so it's, um, you know, that, that difference right there, if you're putting a wish list of requirements out, you're already um, determining kind of who will self-select out if they don't think they meet the majority of the requirements to be considered for the job. So that's one thing. And then the second piece of it, which really compounds that, is that a lot of job descriptions, especially in, you know, engineering focused or kind of the heavy industrial side, tend to read relatively masculine. And it isn't, um, what's been interesting in that research is that when you have the more masculine um, wording, it, um, it detours women from applying. But when you have more feminine wording, it doesn't detour men from applying and you get more women to apply. So it's really interesting Ooh. to see kind of how that, um, how that shakes out. And, and I think it matters a lot because attraction is one of the biggest issues. And I, I would say for us, I think it's probably our biggest issue is um, getting the, you know, getting to the people who we want to know about us and getting them to actually become part of our applicant pool um, it, it, those, those are the kinds of things that, are, that we believe are going to make a difference, and we've started to see that. So we've run a bunch of, um, we call them rapid experiments, where we just say, well, we're just going to try this. We're not trying to scale it for everybody everywhere right this minute, 
So we're going to try it for this particular job or set of jobs in this particular geography, and we're going to see what we learn. And when we did that for some of our highly technical sales-oriented jobs, we found that with a couple of those, and they were very minor changes, by the way, it did not reduce <laughs> the skills required for the job. It did not diminish the expectation of what we had for the job. There was nothing um, that changed what the overall outcome was required for that job. But by simply changing the way we talked about the requirements and some of the words we chose to use, like used collaborative environment instead of, you know, thrives in a competitive environment. <laughs> um, little changes that, that make a difference in, you know, even consciously or subconsciously and what makes people think, oh, I, that sounds like some place I'd like to work. And we did see that it mattered in our applicant pool and resulted in hiring a couple of women into positions that we historically had had a really hard time um, being able to do. So I do think it matters. That is fascinating. Um, you know, and it's such a simple thing, but yet not simple. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I, I would be interested in hearing you talk a little bit about how you got to this role where you, you have this awesome responsibility and you're making such a contribution to Ingersoll Rand and manufacturing in general. You know, you started out in sales and marketing operations, Michelle. Can, can you tell our audience a little bit about your career path and maybe why you made some of the choices you made? Uh, certainly. So um, quite gracious of, of you. Uh, so I, as you mentioned earlier, I've, I've spent most of my time in, um, in manufacturing companies uh, starting at, at John Deere, I spent the first 10 years there. I actually grew up where um, John Deere is headquartered, so John Deere was everywhere. <laughs> um, and my mom retired from John Deere after 45 years, so um, kind of in, in, our, in our family, if you will. And uh, I will say I had um, fabulous opportunities and experiences there and got to do um, a variety of things, working in three different business units and in three different functions, um, even helping start the strategic sourcing organization there, which was just a really fun, um, cool experience to have. And, you know, when I, um, when I made the decision to leave Deer, I joined Kohler, um, kitchen and bath company, and um, really kind of made the move from being in business-oriented roles to HR. And um, part of that for me was really looking at the things I enjoyed the most out of the jobs that I had had in the first 10 years of my career, a lot of the things that I, like what I liked most had to do with um, te building teams and helping teams to high performance and building out processes and helping people really think about how to do things better, um, strong problem solving approach. And the, the, how that, I'll say kind of parlayed into the learning and, and organization development space is that it really was a way to help individuals learn and help or, an organization do the right things for leading change and how they looked at addressing and, and solving problems. And that is what kind of led me into the, into the HR path. Um, so I had an opportunity to lead learning and development there. I then went to Dell um, in uh, Austin, Texas and you know, again, that was in a learning and OD, and um, that was my first opportunity to be in an HR business partner role, which I absolutely loved. Um, and again, manufacturing, um, 
high tech that was kind of fun and a little bit different from, um, you know, more of the, I'll say kind of the foundry experience. And then I came and joined Ingersoll Rand. Um, and joining Ingersoll Rand was really the, I'll say where I, where I feel like my HR career has, um, has really blossomed. And I've had a lot of different opportunities in, you know, Ingersoll Rand University, which is our learning arm in organizational development and in helping integrate um, one of our largest businesses. And we did an acquisition uh, back in 2009 uh, timeframe um, to being a leader of an HR, HR for one of our businesses to coming into the diversity and inclusion and then talent acquisition role. Um, so I've, I have had a lot of fun doing uh, the work that I'm doing. And, and I think the, the connection to whether it's HR or any of the sub-functions within HR, it's really about understanding what matters in your business and what is going to make your business better. And that has a lot to do with understanding how we help our customers. Um, so understanding the, I'll say kind of the whole value chain back to how do we provide value in the HR function. And, you know, when I think about the role I'm in today, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, just in what does a diversity leader do, it is um, a lot about influencing the culture and helping make sure that this is a place people want to come and work. Um, and extending that all the way from those employees through to the to the customer. That's fascinating, and it certainly sheds a different light as well on the HR function. I, I think sometimes there is a misconception <laughs> that HR is just about hiring and <clears throat> helping people be successful elsewhere. Um, <laughs> but the pseudonym for firing, I never really yeah. loved that term. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I do find it interesting, if, if you feel comfortable sharing with our audience, Michelle, you, you left in Gersal Rand and you came back. And we just finished a series about should you stay or should you go, um, <laughs> with a, apologies to the Clash for uh, using their song in a business setting. <laughs> can, can you speak to that a little bit? Because um, we're really encouraging our listeners to – proactively plan and manage their careers and not let the careers sort of happen to them. So that, that's an interesting choice to me. I do know a couple other people that have boomeranged and been happy they did so. So could you speak to that? Absolutely. So I am a, I am a proud boomerang, <laughs> you know, and there, there are actually companies that encourage that. And, and look mm-hmm. at their alumni as a as an available talent pool to hire back. And and I'd I'd like us to um to even get a little more uh, creative and, and resourceful in that because there's there can be there can be a lot of power in that. You know it's it's interesting because I was with the company for about five years, and mm-hmm. I was um, having a a little bit of a what am I going to do next? Um, what do I think I want to do? And I um, I left to join a high tech company, um, and if you remember, I came to Ingersoll Rand from another high tech company, and mm-hmm. there was something about that that was quite appealing to me. Um, you know, as it as it turned out, I was supposed to move to uh, one part of the country, and about three months in, they asked me to move to another part of the country um, that wasn't nearly as uh, desirable of a location 
um, from just purely a family kind of whole life uh, perspective. And so we chose not to go. And as I was looking at what does that mean and, you know, kind of what am I going to do from here, uh, the company I had joined was quite gracious and was interested and willing to allow me to work remotely. But I also knew that that wasn't really like it would work, but it was going to be temporary, likely, <laughs> in the whole scheme mm-hmm. of things that, um, you know, I was really interested in, you know, being part of something that didn't feel temporary to me. Um, so, you know, I, I inquired as to whether or not um, Ingersoll Rand was a, was a place that would be interested in uh, reconsidering, um, you know, reconsidering me for something that, you know, role that might be available that might make sense. And it, and it happened to work out that there was a role available that I was um, quite well suited for, and it was a really nice way to reenter. Um, you know, I've been back at Ingersoll Rand now, like, gosh, seven or eight years. Um, feels like mm-hmm. I never left. <laughs> uh, I, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's also a level. Not, not all companies can pull that off. Not all companies mm-hmm. or will do that. Um, you know, there's a couple people who were making those decisions who were quite gracious and, um, you know, were, were very willing to um, think about the opportunity or value I could provide and um, give me an opportunity to do that. And it's happened to work out really well. Um, I know that's also not always the case. Um, so I, I think for people who are evaluating the, you know, do I stay, do I go, um, you know, I think the first thing that, that I would say is make sure that you are clear about the role you want work to play in your life. So in my decision, moving where the company wanted me to move was going to be so far away geographically from the rest of my family, it just wasn't a... Um, it wasn't a trade-off or sacrifice I was willing to make at the time. Um, I'm, I'm married. My husband and I have been together for 22 years. We have two kids. And the idea of taking them out of and away from everything that they knew just didn't, just didn't feel right. And, um, you know, looking back on it, it was absolutely the right decision. Um, sure. and, I, and I just think that when you're – when you're clear about the role you want work to play in life, you can then set your goals accordingly and you can balance your ambition with timing. And um, you just, you have to be intentional and true to yourself because it's really the only thing that matters. And there are lots of jobs and there are lots of opportunities for you to get experiences. You need to be clear about how you want to get those and where you think you can get those and do them in a way that's aligned with um, how you want to live the other parts of your life. That is great advice. Um, we always end our podcast, Michelle, by asking our um, interviewees if they have any advice for women in manufacturing. I, I think what you've already shared is a great amount of wisdom. Is there anything that you would add to that when you look back on your career path or the, gee, I wish I would have known this one that you could share with our audience? I think the, the, one, had- addition, 
the one additional thing I would share, and this is this was the big learning I had when I left Ingersoll Rand, is that um, I completely underestimated the um, the value I was bringing and the way I was viewed, and I didn't stop to ask anybody. And I learned oh. that when I left. And I had people saying, well, wait a minute, why are you leaving? What are you going to go do? Like, why? You could do that here. You could. And it, it, my, one of my biggest takeaways and one of the things I often say to people in, you know, when I'm having stay conversations with them is, you know, if at any point you're really thinking that there's something else that would be better for you, will you please at least come talk to me first? And, and I say that because that was the biggest learning I had was that I didn't tell anybody that um, that I was feeling stifled and that I thought I could do more. I just went and looked at what else was out there rather than really looking at what else was here. And there was actually a lot here. And I didn't really give that full consideration. And so that's the one thing that I, you know, again, in that big decision of do I stay or do I go, make sure you really understand what options are available for you, where you're at. And don't make assumptions <laughs> because our, our own self-talk can get in the way and help. Um, we can quickly make that self-talk become fact, <laughs> and then we make decisions based on it. And that can, be, that can be a little problematic. So, you know, stopping to really make sure you assess the facts and understand how you're viewed and what options you have, and then make the decision on which one you think is really, um, you know, the better set of options for you. I think that's great advice. I would actually echo that based on an experience I had. I wish I had told my boss I was thinking about leaving, and I didn't. I, like you, um, looked outside for opportunities to grow, and um, I regretted it partly because I had a great deal of personal and professional respect for my immediate supervisor in that particular role. And exactly what you said, I think there would have been opportunities where I was at had I raised my hand and said, hey, I'm, I'm feeling bored and under-challenged. So I'm, I'm glad you shared that with our listeners, and, and I would echo it. Um, Andrea, do you have any other questions or um items you'd like uh, Michelle to expand on? And, you know, I, I think Michelle has just been a, a fantastic guest. You know, I would say the one thread that I'm, I'm hearing through this entire conversation is, is the fact that we need, as, as organizations, as organization leaders, we need to engage with people. I think there's many times where you know, organizational leaders, CEOs, owners get bogged down with the day-to-day. -day. They're looking at the numbers. They're looking at production. They're looking at all these other facets. But people really drive the organization, and organizational growth and innovation, every aspect. And that is, should be one of the biggest assets, as Michelle said, uh, to, the, to the company and should be treated as such. And I think sometimes that, that gets mailed in, uh, especially in manufacturing and, and good old boys club uh, traditional views. And uh, uh, it's great to see and hear about an organization like Ingersoll Rand that is 
really breaking the mold there and being a leader in regards to investing in people. Well, Michelle, with that, um, we thank you so much for sharing your time and insight with us and our audience. We will be back in 2019 with more conversations between Andrea and I, as well as more interview subjects. So to all of our listeners out there, happy holidays. And in 2019, we wish all of you uh, personal and professional health, wealth, and happiness. Michelle, again, thank you, and happy holidays to you. Same to you. Thank you for listening to Women and Manufacturing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.